underdocumented private work, work often seen as not real activism, but it is the realest activism there is. Welcome to Black Tea Speaks, the podcast about feminist epistemologies, healing practices, and justice. Black Tea Speaks is a community of practice that is rooted in and guided by those whose voices are often forgotten or refuted. It aims to transform and recognize that our Black, Indigenous, Disabled, Queer, and Trans voices are sources of expertise. We are healers, spiritual leaders, and cultural workers. We aim to delve into the intersections where other lifestyle, spirituality, self-help, and wellness content often glide over or do not have the full capacity to engage with. We offer tangible tools, discussion, and mutual aid to build cross-movement solidarity, radical activism, healing, and well-being. We are committed to collective care and breaking intergenerational curses of trauma, white supremacy, and colonization to become fully embodied people and to regain agency in our lives and communities. We are critical, but we are also so much more than our criticisms. We are expansive and full of light and darkness, and most importantly, we will speak. I'm your host, Gray Butler, so grab a cup of your favorite tea or other beverage of your choice and enjoy the episode. This wasn't initially going to be my first episode, but I think that given the recent brutal murder of George Floyd by white Minneapolis cop Derek Chauvin and the subsequent uprisings of yet another murder and a long-standing cycle of violence against Black bodies, minds, and spirits, and the ways in which that this ongoing trauma is intersecting with the current COVID-19 crisis, I think that now, more than ever, it's important to have a conversation about how we as Black, queer, disabled, trans people, and allies talk about healing, activism, and involvement. I'm not here to talk about the details of the murder for my own well-being and traumas, but I am here to provide a framework and tools that I have found helpful for dealing with this crisis. And while I'm not going into the details of the murder, I still want to give a content warning for discussions of continued police violence, ableism, and traumas of Black and Brown folks. So with that, let's go in. Over the past few days, I've had a number of friends and allies reach out to me about my well-being and seeing even more of my friends and loved ones in states of anger, despair, hopelessness, and exhaustion. And seeing this has reminded me of my own continued struggles with activist guilt, burnout, trauma, and just the sheer nihilistic hopelessness of it all. But it's also reminded me of the deep, urgent need that we have for radical collective care, access, and a fundamental shift in the ways that we've come to understand, quote unquote, doing the work. A couple days ago, a dear friend of mine posted on Facebook a Twitter response of someone saying that everyone needs to attend the protests, marches, and uprisings regardless of whether or not you personally agree with the quote unquote riots in order to support in some way. Be that handing out water, treating wounds, providing emotional support, getting protesters out safely, and to just simply physically be present. And while these actions are critical, it brought to mind to me some of the activist guilt I've carried for not being able to participate. Times in which I've had to completely remove myself from activist spaces for long periods of time during critical moments, and then on top of that, faced a constant sense of Not just guilt, but paranoia and unsafety. There was this sort of sense that 
if I'm not doing the work, who will and who will keep me safe? And it was perpetuated by the sense that nobody really cared about me or that the people caring about me were other equally burnt out activists who I didn't want to further burden with my own issues. So it seemed like I couldn't afford to step back because this very much was a part of my survival. There was also this overwhelming sense of futility and dread once I'd realized that I could no longer emotionally, mentally, and sometimes physically participate in the ways that I had before or at all according to how I'd been conditioned to understand activism. All of a sudden, my connection to the only sort of outlet to process was stripped away. It was an outlet that was the only space that had recognized my constant traumas to be a fundamentally intersectional, intergenerational, and perpetual effect of white supremacy, colonization, transphobia, and terror embodied within me. But it was also a space that was making me unwell on top of the compounding visceral violence. This also made me think of what happens to those of us who simply cannot participate in the way suggested. Why are we merely excused from responsibility but not fundamental to the cause? Why aren't we centering a structure where our forms of participation are not merely watered-down secondhand options? I think about the ways in which some of us are never really in a position to even be out there giving the sort of support that is often the center of our collective imagination of quote-unquote activist work. And are we just expected to step away from these movements or to never be involved to begin with? Or what's more accurately going on, is the labor that we put in not credited as activist work? Our wisdom ignored? Our inherent value dismissed? I think that sometimes when we're talking about whether or not to engage, it's framed as a sort of failure of will or failure of truly caring Or you're expected to go elsewhere and heal for the sake of your own individualized sense of self-care. But when the conversation gets framed in terms of a failure of will in conjunction with this sort of naturalized determination of white supremacy and futility, or the continued performance of our traumas to be seen and witnessed, we lose track of another very important question. How are we structuring and doing the work to undo our own ableist assumptions and in what ways are we inadvertently replicating some of the very structures we're claiming to dismantle? I find that in some activist spaces, we still equate worth to a sort of relationship of how much we can produce for the cause. And this sort of framing is inherently capitalistic in nature. Right now, many of us are sort of operating out of this sort of crash and burn model where you're expected to work yourself into the ground then remove yourself to go heal elsewhere or become so traumatized that you shut down. But I'm wondering how do we shift this so that healing is not just a part of the peripheral side notes or as a tool to repair damage inflicted upon us but it becomes an ongoing central practice in our activism. I came to ask these questions through reading various disability justice and healing justice activists, authors, and creators, such as Leah Lakshmi Pepsna Saramasina, Amita Swardin, and Adrienne Marie Brown. In her book, Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, Leah talks about her experiences with healing justice and activist work as a queer, disabled, brown femme, 
And in particular, she explains her relationship to activism and watching people come into activist spaces. And something she writes really stuck out to me. She writes, Most folks I know come to activist spaces longing to heal, but our movements are often filled with more ableism and burnout than they are with healing. We work and work and work from a place of crisis. Healing is dismissed as irrelevant, reserved for folks with money and individual responsibility, something you do on your own time. Our movements are so burnout-paced with little to no room for grief, anger, trauma, spirituality, disability, aging, parenting, or sickness that many people leave when we age, have kids get sicker or more disabled or just can't make it to the 12 meetings a week anymore. What I think is so pertinent about this section is a sort of liberatory promise that comes with these activist spaces. Many of us enter because we have our own wounds, and we have our own ways in which these structures become embodied in and through us, through our intersections, through our unique life experiences, through our histories and our ancestral lines. And all of these different ways in which we have been wounded and survived and the unique ways we come to these spaces seeking a sort of refuge and healing and understanding and ways of being seen in ways that we haven't before inform our experiences of what these spaces will do for us and also for better or for worse or more realistically somewhere in between also color how we create our modalities but a lot of us find that we burn out. We end up not being able to continue the work and still manage to function, still manage to support ourselves, still manage to exist and to be and to take care of our needs in our lives. And it becomes a sort of paradoxical structure and it's not sustainable. How often do we relate to our work and replicate our own trauma patterns and how we engage with each other as activists? How often do we disconnect from our bodily, mental, and spiritual needs because that's how we've been conditioned to do as forms of self-harm and reinscribing interpersonal and systematic abuse onto ourselves. How often do we intellectualize and project our traumas onto our work and ways of avoiding our own healing? How does this tangibly manifest and what insights would we gain if we engage with our traumas in new ways and to integrate them into our work? And on top of being re-traumatizing, engaging the way that we have is not only unsustainable, but it's also inaccessible. I fundamentally believe that as disabled folks, we are in a unique position and hold an invaluable wisdom towards sustainability, survival, and getting the damn shit done. We have what Leah would call crypt knowledge. We don't have the luxury of ignoring the draining impact activist spaces have on us because for some of us, it can harm us in very tangible and direct ways. And this isn't to say that these structures aren't killing and harming able-bodied black folks and other marginalized people, but it is to say that the same structures that block our access are some of the same structures that are making it not sustainable for any of us even the folks who are able-bodied, neurotypical, and without impairments. And so this particular kind of disability justice and healing activism that centers a sort of open accessibility is not just only for disabled folks, though it is led and created by and for those of us who are most impacted. And I think that taking a leaf out of our book 
and sort of reimagining how we do activism will enable us to be more sustainable, imaginative, whole, and valued. Leah also asks, what does it mean to shift our ideas of access or care and care, whether it's disability, childcare, economic access, or more? From an individual chore, an unfortunate cost of having an unfortunate body, to a collective responsibility that's maybe even deeply joyful. How does it change our lived experiences of disability and chronic illness? What does it mean to wrestle with these ideas of softness and strength, vulnerability, pride, asking for help and not, all of which are so deeply raced and classed and gendered? And I think that framing it as an even potentially joyful act is so incredibly powerful because the work that we're doing, while filled with moments of intense grief, anger, sorrow, and trauma, needs to allow us to bring our whole bodies, souls, and beings into the work that we do. In order to do that, we need to be able to experience moments of joy and healing and moments of working from a place that's not just out of crisis and desperation, but also working from a place of a deeply rooted trust, care, and community that is not always present when we're not centering healing as our main ethos and mode of engaging. In an interview with Kate Warning for the podcast Irresistible, Adrienne Marie Brown, while talking about her book Emergent Strategy, asks the question, what does it mean to come into relationship with each other that is a right relationship, that's not um, master and slave, that's not, um, you know, police and potential prisoner, that's not um, boss and, you know, worker, um, that who's always working and never able to reach um, equity? Um, you know, it's like, how do we start to, to turn those, that commitment to hierarchy into a commitment to being collaborative and being with each other? She also brings up the point that we have enough trauma and pain and despair in our experiences as marginalized people. We don't need that work that we're doing in and of itself to be an additional source of trauma. There seems to be this sort of commitment to suffering in a lot of activist spaces. We shouldn't have to constantly step away from the work that we're doing in the sense that the work in and of itself is doing us harm. The work that we're doing, while hard as hell and oftentimes not pretty, not easy, not always joyful, and oftentimes filled with grief, also has the substantial moments where we do engage in pleasure, joy, and healing. And to also know that healing is not always easy or pleasurable. But there is a difference between pain that heals and pain that re-traumatizes, and the latter is burning us out. Sometimes it feels like if you're not so engaged and outraged and miserable and turned on, plugged in and working until you can't take it anymore, that you're not truly listening or you're not truly involved or you're not a good activist. And I think that that comes from a very valid place of combating this sort of alternative that's oftentimes a harmful message that we receive that oh, you can simply be apolitical or that you can simply turn everything off and step away. And in order to do that, that's an act of privilege. And it is in a lot of ways to be able to completely disconnect and not be available does come from a site of privilege. In conjunction with this, it doesn't mean that the entire complete opposite is the key to our liberation. 
to be constantly engaged and constantly plugged in and re-traumatizing ourselves and operating solely out of crisis is still in a lot of ways taking away our agency to be fully embodied humans and experiencing a full range of emotions. Bringing that fullness into our activism is being denied for this fear of not wanting to be clueless and not wanting to be a bad activist or replicating the kinds of harm that a lot of quote-unquote allies do when they just simply want to turn away from us or, or not acknowledge our pain or to be apolitical. And I think in a lot of ways, our pleasure and our ability to come together and communicate and do this hard work and this hard interpersonal work is critical. It is not something to always be suspicious of. To be able to experience joy in our work that we're doing is not the sort of unachievable experience exclusive to those who have the privilege in time. It is true that our ways of accessing these ideas of pleasure are very much embedded in the capitalistic and individualistic understandings of pleasure, such as, you know, being able to afford a private therapist or to go buy yourself a massage or face mask or vacation or these things titled under the capitalistic neoliberal form of quote-unquote self-care. But I think that there are other ways of finding and creating pleasure and care for self and the collective such that we have a structure that is sustainable so we can become resilient in these moments of continued crisis after crisis after crisis. If we're not doing the work to collectively heal and to collectively create these networks of care and interpersonal knowing and understanding and relationships, and we're not doing this work beforehand, then we're not equipped to emotionally, mentally, and spiritually cope when crisis strikes, and we'll be ill-equipped to harness these shocks to the system to their fullest potential. Instead, we go into fight or flight mode and put our energy into organizing and we might see some important results, but a lot of the times it's not sustainable or long enough to be the kind of long-term work that we shouldn't have to do, but have to do nonetheless. And I think that reimagining how we do the groundwork into a structure that is feeding you and healing you as you go is going to be the only way that we're able to be in it for the long run, to be in it through these times of crisis and to also be able to mobilize and transmute crisis into long-term change. And with that, I'd love to end on another quote from Leah. Thank you for listening to Black Tea Speaks. How do we learn to do this love work of collective care that lifts us up instead of abandons us, that grapples with all the deep ways in which care is so much more complicated than just call me if you need something?